Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news, bringing you every week all the latest updates on anything to do with the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, helping you make sense of media reports about the latest research into potential new psychiatric treatments and new insights into the causes of mental illness for the purpose of better informing the general public about mental health issues and also to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. And this edition of Psychiatry Today was pre-recorded for airing first on August 5th, 2015. Thanks very much, as always, to all of you who listen in to this podcast, whether it's from AmericasWebRadio.com or on iTunes. Appreciate all of you giving the podcast your support. And first on tonight's show, the mental health community responds to the mass of killings committed by people with mental health issues. Uh, Mental health experts often find themselves at least turned to for answers, at worst on the defensive. At times like this, one psychiatry professor calls it the conversation we're stuck with, a teachable moment growing out of horror. Each time a mental illness is cited as a possible factor in a high-profile mass killing, there's a collective sigh among mental health professionals, a heavy sigh, even as they see an opportunity for serious discussions of problems and remedies. They also worry about setbacks to their efforts to destigmatize mental illness. Most people who suffer from mental illness are not violent, and most violent acts are committed by people who are not mentally ill. If, hypothetically, everyone with mental illness were locked up, you might think you were safe, but you are not, according to one expert. And according to the National Institute of Mental Health's latest estimate, that is from 2012, There were an estimated 9.6 million adults in the United States, 4.1% of the total adult population, experiencing serious mental illness over the previous year. If you look at that large pool of people, only a tiny proportion of them will eventually commit violence. How are you going to identify them? It's like the proverbial needle in a haystack. Yet public perceptions can be hard to shake. Of the mass shootings of the past 10 years that are most ingrained in America's psyche, the mental health problems of the perpetrator became a central part of the narrative in several cases, notably the rampages at Virginia Tech in 2007, at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, at an Aurora, Colorado movie theater in 2012, 
and near the University of California, Santa Barbara, in 2014. Just this month, a jury convicted James Holmes of 12 murders in Aurora, Colorado, after a wrenching trial that delved deeply into his mental problems. And at the time I'm recording this for you, uh, the jury is still deliberating uh, his fate in terms of the penalty, life in prison, or the death penalty. In two rampages recently, the perpetrators also have been described as mentally troubled. After the killing of four Marines and a Navy sailor in Chattanooga, the family of slain assailant Mohammed Abdulaziz said he had been in and out of treatment for depression starting as an adolescent. John Russell Hauser, who killed two people and wounded nine before killing himself at a Louisiana movie theater last week, or two weeks ago, I should say, had a history of mental health issues, according to his family. While these incidents seize public attention, there's far less focus on the serious systemic problems besetting America's health system. 40% of people with serious mental illness are going without treatment. Our systems are fragmented and overburdened. When do we pay attention to this? We pay attention most when there's a horrifying mass casualties shooting and then people say, let's fix the system. That puts mental health professionals in a bind. They're trying to debunk the stigma that people in the mental health system are dangerous and yet refocus attention to how we do improve the system. That's the conversation we're stuck with and we need to use it to educate the public that the vast majority of people with mental illness are not violent. Some people with serious mental illness are more likely to commit violence than people who are not mentally ill. There's a long way to go in developing treatment that works for more people. And it's not just about getting better medications. It's about providing the supportive services, jobs, access to housing. Researchers and mental health professionals are working on steps that could be taken to reduce access to firearms by people who pose a high risk of violence, whether or not those people have mental illness. By broadening firearms bans to include people who've been convicted of violent misdemeanors or domestic violence, public safety could be enhanced while avoiding further stigmatization of mental illness. Another topic of concern pertains to sharing of information. After some of the recent mass killings, there were accounts of mental health professionals becoming aware that the eventual perpetrator might pose a threat and questions about whether such information could be shared more effectively. Some universities, aware of what happened at Virginia Tech in this regard, have formed threat management teams to evaluate possible risks posed by students and employees and, if necessary, 
take appropriate steps to prevent violence. The teams generally include lawyers, law enforcement officials, and mental health professionals. Their options include putting a potentially violent individual under close observation and arranging protection for potential targets. As for individual psychiatrists, accepted protocol obliges them to take action if they believe patients pose an imminent threat of harm to themselves or others. If the level of threat is difficult to evaluate, a psychiatrist should consult with a colleague in a way that does not violate patient privacy. Early intervention can be crucial in enabling a person to get proper mental health treatment before problems get out of control. To this end, the American Psychiatric Association has presented a program called Typical or Troubled in more than 2,000 schools nationwide. It aims to train teachers to notice early warning signs and, if warranted, make referrals. School officials and other adults should think carefully about how to respond when young people do exhibit behavioral problems. They are frequently suspended or expelled from school, and the isolation that begins then contributes to further isolation as an adult. What these kids need is even greater socialization at this time in their lives. In states where mental illness was clearly a factor in high-profile violence, steps have been taken to improve mental health programs, but not always as aggressively as advocates and victims' families had hoped. In Connecticut, after disturbed gunman Adam Lanza shot 20 children and six educators in Newtown, some new mental health services for high-risk populations were implemented, as well as an anti-stigma campaign meant to encourage people to seek treatment. There was some debate this spring over funding levels, but Governor Daniel P. Malloy's administration contends that Connecticut has one of the best-funded public mental health systems in the country. Colorado responded to the Aurora Rampage with a $20 million expansion of mental health services, including a 24-hour hotline and a dozen new drop-in crisis centers. According to Rocky Mountain Crisis Partners, which runs the hotline service for the state, it has received more than 53,000 calls since December 1, 2014. In Virginia, debate about mental health has been affected by two high-profile incidents. Sung Hui Cho, the gunman who massacred 32 people at Virginia Tech, had been ordered into outpatient treatment prior to his 2007 rampage. And in 2013, Gus Deeds, the son of State Senator Cree Deeds, stabbed his father and then killed himself hours after he was released from emergency custody 
because mental health officials couldn't find an available psychiatric bed. Since then, a panel has been formed to study Virginia's mental health system and emergency mental health services have been bolstered. But Deeds and his allies are frustrated that Republican legislators have blocked the state from expanding Medicaid, a step which would enable large numbers of low-income people to obtain mental health care. Now, we're going to take a commercial break here. When we come back, a couple of comments I have about this item about mental health professionals' response to mass killings and an update on John Russell Hauser, the uh, Louisiana theater killer. This is Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. We are talking about how mental health experts react uh, when one after another over the last several years there have been mass killings committed by uh, those who suffer from mental illness. Uh, Just a couple of points about this, even though this fact is certainly no comfort whatsoever to the victims of these crimes and uh, doesn't make any of us, especially those in the mental health field, any less upset about when things like this happen. It certainly is true 
that a given person who suffers from a serious mental illness is far more likely to be the victim of violence than to commit any violence. Uh, so the answer is not looking so much at uh, people who suffer from serious mental illness, but uh, making sure that getting treatment to those who need it isn't so difficult. Uh, it's too difficult because there are too few practitioners uh, for mental health services, and uh, it's uh, all too often financially out of reach for those who need it. Uh, the other point is that it has to be easier for mental health professionals to make sure that something is done about it when they identify someone who may be at risk for acting out violently. Uh, you know, the article talks about the issue of privacy and uh, sharing information. Um, well, <clears throat> let's take the example of what happened with James Holmes. He was the uh, Aurora, Colorado movie theater uh, shooter. He was seeing a psychiatrist through the university mental health system where he was a graduate student. And his psychiatrist uh, had expressed uh, concerns to the appropriate authorities. Um, and, you know, we don't know all the details. Of course, law enforcement are going to be very secretive about this thing, and it really didn't come up as an issue during Holmes's trial. Uh, but from what we do know, apparently the psychiatrist did at least reach out to the university security staff about James Holmes. And uh, but you know, if they report, if this the security for the university uh, reports it to the Aurora police, uh, the reaction is well. Uh, you can't arrest someone for maybe committing a crime in the future. Um, you know, I really wonder, would it have been so terrible if they had just gone, knocked on his door? Might they have seen uh, all the uh, explosives and arms he was working on, the booby traps he was preparing to set for the day he committed the murders? Um, you know, who knows? But... There are 12 lives lost because an opportunity to intervene was missed. You know, I think any mental health professional is obligated uh, to report to the appropriate authorities if they suspect that uh, their patient is an imminent threat to uh, themselves or someone else. And, you know, if in, in my opinion, if a mental health professional has a suspicion that their patient may be uh, at, at risk of harming someone else and they refrain from reporting it to the appropriate authorities because they're concerned about inevitably losing the therapist, client, or doctor, patient uh, <clears throat> confidentiality or even relationship, uh, then shame on them. Um, someone's safety far outweighs uh, the issue of confidentiality of information as well as preserving the therapist-client or doctor-patient relationship. Um, and 
anyone who makes such a disclosure, uh, which obviously is breaching privileged information and confidentiality, is protected under the law uh, because uh, as long as you can document the person made a threat, you're protected. Now, there is more news I have for you on one of these incidents. Um, As previously reported, um, John Russell Hauser, the shooter in the Louisiana movie theater, had been involuntarily committed to a hospital in Columbus, Georgia, by a judge, and that should have disqualified him from making the purchase of the firearm that he eventually used in those killings in that movie theater. Uh, This is how it was reported to the media, and indeed, this is how I reported it to you on last week's podcast. But more information has come to light since then. Apparently, these mental health concerns in this case did not stop the gun buy because the judge says the order for commitment was actually never given. The man who killed two people in a Louisiana movie theater a couple of weeks ago was able to legally purchase a gun despite a judge's supposed order sending him to a mental hospital in 2008 because he was never actually involuntarily committed for treatment. That, according to the county probate judge, uh, who said, if he had been adjudicated in need of involuntary treatment, I would have reported that to the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, who would then send it to the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Uh, That from Muskogee County probate judge Mark E. D'Antonio, who was the county's chief clerk at the time, He said, I clearly would have known that did not happen. An involuntary commitment would have forever banned John Hauser from buying a gun under the sweeping federal gun law that passed after the Virginia Tech mass shooting in 2007, but Hauser never reached the crucial stage of having a judge rule on his mental competence. As a result, his purchase of a 40 caliber semi-automatic handgun at a Phoenix City, Alabama pawn shop last year was perfectly legal, setting up a tragedy in Lafayette, Louisiana, and exposing what gun control advocates say is a troubling loophole in a federal law that governs who may legally acquire firearms. Hauser's brush with institutionalization began in the spring of 2008 when he showed up unannounced in the small town of Carrollton, Georgia, and barged into his daughter's office to angrily object to her upcoming wedding. It was an ominous and threatening scene, the family's attorney said later in a court petition. A judge signed what was known as an order to apprehend Hauser, and sheriff's deputies whisked him away to a mental hospital in Columbus, according to court papers. Following standard procedure in Georgia, doctors could have evaluated and examined Hauser for up to a week before making a decision about what to do with him. At that point, they could either release him, persuade him to be admitted by his own agreement, 
or petition a local probate court judge to involuntarily commit him for treatment, a formal judgment called an adjudication. Neither a release nor a voluntary stay in the hospital would have resulted in Hauser's hospitalization being reported up the chain to state authorities and then to the National Instant Criminal Background Check System Federal Database. According to interviews with both law enforcement officials and legal experts in Georgia. A spokesman for the state hospital system and a spokeswoman for the Georgia Bureau of Investigation said they were working to provide answers about Hauser's case. In recent years, Georgia and other states have widely varied in their interpretations of the mental health clauses in the Federal Gun Control Act. A recent proposal filed by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives shows that federal authorities have long been aware that state officials are confused about the entire process and may be unsure as to what constitutes involuntary commitment or an adjudication of, quote, mental defectiveness, uh, and a very, very unfortunate term, so dated it was used from the 1930s to the 60s. It's, it's offensive to the mentally ill, and, you know, this needs to be rewritten. It's still worded that way in the statutes. Regardless, the bottom line is Hauser's situation just managed to get through enough loopholes uh, to prevent there being anything in the background check that would have prevented him from buying the gun that he used to commit murders. Uh, so again, very, very unfortunate circumstances, but despite that one issue, there were many other issues in his background that if there had been stricter rules about people having been convicted of certain violent misdemeanors even, uh, being restricted from purchasing guns, that potentially could have stopped him. Of course, we don't have statutes like that on the books, and who knows if there'll be any stomach for instituting them, uh, even if lawmakers decide to do so. And they're not showing any signs of wanting to anytime soon. Um, so there you have it. Um, it's still a matter of grave concern uh, that these things continue to happen. We don't seem to be able to stop them. Uh, at the very least, uh, there should be better security at places where a large number of people gather. Um, and uh, there should be much better availability of mental health services for people who need them. <clears throat> it should not be so difficult for families of the mentally ill to get courts and judges to mandate their relatives into treatment um, if they refuse. It should also not be so difficult for uh, family members or mental health professionals to convince law enforcement that someone may be a danger to themselves or others and um, may be a warrant-mandated period of observation. Uh, just to keep them safe and uh, prevent harm.
Our civil liberties have uh, certainly been something we all value highly, uh, but in some cases sacrificing them for a little bit of time may save lives. We'll be back after this next break with more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. My name is Dr. Jeff Terry from Mobile, Alabama. I love taking care of my patients and not computers. That is why I need your help. On October 1st, the government will mandate that I implement the new ICD-10 coding system, and if not able to do so, then I will be put out of business and my patients will have to find a new physician. Please call and write your congressmen and senators today and tell them no to ICD-10. Tell them physicians need a grace period in order to concentrate on you, the patient, and not the computer. I'm Georgia author Doug Dahlgren. I'll be hosting a new program here on America's Web Radio. We call it The Prologue. Now, you may not yet be familiar with me or my work, and that's the point of the whole show. There are many talented writers out there that you haven't heard of yet. Now, a prologue is an introduction to a piece of literature or perhaps music, and its intention is to hook you into the story or that piece of music. In today's cluttered world of new authors and books, it can be costly and time-consuming to sample everything that's out there. That's where my new show can help. I'll introduce you to the author and their book in an hour-long discussion that just might interest you and entertain you. We hope long enough that you'll want to buy the writer's book. So join me, won't you, right here starting June 12th and continuing on Fridays after that at 11 a.m. Eastern Time right here on America's Web Radio. That's the prologue with Doug Dahlgren. I look forward to meeting you. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all your latest mental health-related news. Primary care doctors should screen for depression. That, according to a government-backed panel of medical experts and their latest proposal. This comes uh, from the United States Preventative Services Task Force, which broadens its 2009 recommendation that adults be screened in doctor's offices 
if staff-assisted depression care is available. And that's a key point, that if there, I'm thinking, what are the implications, um, both medically, psychiatrically, and medical legally, if you screen for depression, you find someone who's acutely suicidal and there's no assistance there for them. Regardless, though, this is a recommendation to screen all adults in the primary care setting, including pregnant and postpartum women. Screen everybody for depression. <clears throat> About 7% of people in the United States met criteria for a depressive disorder between 2009 and 2012, according to a review of evidence the panel conducted before making its proposal. The benefits of effective screening and treatment for depression in the United States population are likely significant. Doctors can screen for depression in their offices using the nine-question patient health questionnaire, or the PHQ-9, as it's called. It's a brief questionnaire. It takes literally seconds to have a patient fill it out, and it's an excellent validated screening tool to see if someone may be suffering from clinical depression. There is good data showing now that if a woman is depressed and you can treat her, that you will have a big effect on her children. This is why the recommendation puts extra emphasis on pregnant and postpartum women. But it's important that doctors who screen for depression must also have time to treat and manage people who need it, like I was saying before. Depression screening should be routine. The way you screen for hypertension, which is high blood pressure, and diabetes as part of a routine clinic visit or high cholesterol or heart disease. But there has to be time to deal with a positive response. That means if someone is depressed. So that includes time to sort out what brought it on and the severity. Now that's clearly easier said than done. Uh, primary care physicians already are severely pressed for time in terms of what they can get done in a particular visit. But this new proposal is a grade B recommendation, which means that there is at least moderate certainty that the benefit will be moderate to substantial. Under the Affordable Care Act, grade A and B recommendations from the Preventative Services Task Force are covered without cost to the patients. This is why we don't pay for an annual physical exam anymore. But the specifics of that coverage are up to the individual insurers. Well, I think that's rather intriguing. So now, if this independent government panel, and I say independent because it's free of any commercial influence from health insurance companies, if they're now saying, hey, you know, screening for depression in the primary care setting is a grade B recommendation, then that has to be covered um, without cost. Well, uh, that means that it's something that a primary care physician can bill for. And how does this work? Well, 
in addition to all the other things they say they did during that visit, add another line to that bill they send to the insurance company on that separate line after the physical exam, the lab work, and, what, and screening for diabetes, screening for heart disease, cholesterol, smoking, cessation, counseling, what have you. Add to that screening for depression. I absolutely think this should be the case. Depression is a medical problem. It is a physical problem. It relates to abnormal chemistry in the brain due to stress, causing people to have serious, potentially life-threatening symptoms of depression, which at least impair their quality of life, at worst put their lives in danger. And there's such a high correlation between depression and the worsening of every other medical problem the doctor is treating them for, from their asthma or COPD to their heart disease, their high blood pressure, and especially their diabetes. Uh, so it only makes sense medically and economically. It also only makes sense ethically. But again, uh, the one catch is if you're going to screen for it, if you find it, you need to be prepared to take the time to do something about it. Um, and there are some very progressive primary care practices who do have therapists on staff who can uh, do some counseling of patients they discover to be suffering from depression <clears throat> and uh, steer them to the appropriate services that they need to get help as opposed to just, okay, here's a prescription for an antidepressant, pat them on the back and send them on their way for another three, four months. Uh, so I applaud the Preventive Services Task Force for including a major mental health problem, a major public health problem in routine primary care screening. And, you know, if this were to become more prevalent in the future, hopefully it would lead to better and stronger collaboration between primary care physicians and mental health professionals including psychiatrists. So don't be surprised next time you go to your primary care physician for your annual physical if you get asked about your mood. Now, those of you who have elderly parents um, or other relatives who are on a lot of medications and perhaps they're living independently by themselves, or perhaps they're living in a setting such as independent living, the senior uh, setting, or perhaps they're in assisted living or memory care, or worse, in a nursing home. This is something that you want to know about. So heads up, uh, or go get those of you who are close to you in that situation to listen to this, because seniors are getting mental health drugs at twice the rate of other adults, but see psychiatrists less. The high use of psychotropic medications in seniors raises the dangerous possibility of interactions with their other prescriptions. Older Americans are receiving prescriptions for mental health medications at more than twice the rate 
that younger adults do according to a new study and much less likely to be getting their mental health care from a psychiatrist, which raises questions about whether they could be at risk of problems caused by a collision of multiple medications, in other words, adverse interactions, and about whether primary care doctors may need more support to care for older people with depression, anxiety, and other conditions. The new findings, published in the Journal of the American Geriatrics Society by a team from the University of Michigan Medical School and uh, the Ann Arbor Healthcare System and the Veterans Administration, came from the first study to compare overall outpatient mental health treatment in adults over age 65 with that of patients between ages of 18 and 64. The authors probed nationally representative outpatient visit data combined with United States census data to come up with rates of different types of care. The worry of previous decades that America's seniors weren't receiving attention for mental health issues may now need to shift. Findings suggest that psychotropic medication use is widespread among older adults in outpatient care at a far higher rate than among younger patients. In many cases, especially for milder depression and anxiety, the safer treatment for older adults who are already taking multiple medications for other conditions might be more therapy-oriented, but very few older adults receive this sort of care. And, you know, I would like to put my own two cents here in that issue. There's a number of reasons why uh, older adults don't often get therapy or counseling. Uh, for one thing, that generation tends to not believe in therapy, as it were. There's a lot of stigmatization, uh, including self-stigmatization about mental health issues in that generation. But let's say uh, they were open to it and they didn't have the stigma. There are very few mental health practitioners who accept Medicare. Uh, they're definitely in the minority. So really there's a, sh a terrible shortage of mental health practitioners who are available to treat the elderly. Now, the issue of medication use is particularly concerning for older adults because the risk-benefit balance can shift as they become more likely to experience side effects or other adverse events. For instance, anti-anxiety benzodiazepine drugs, these are Valium, Xanax, Clonopin, and Ativan, Librium, Cirax, etc. They may be relatively safe for younger adults. In my opinion, they're not safe for anyone at any age. But they carry a higher risk of car accidents, falls, fractures, and worsening of thinking ability or memory loss for older patients. And <clears throat> the article will go on to describe other types of drug interactions that may happen. Uh, I'm going to bring you that after our next commercial break. Uh, but again, keep this in mind. If you or someone close to you has 
an elderly parent or relative uh, on a whole lot of medications. It's something that exam, uh, needs examination, inventory needs to be taken, uh, their doctors need to be questioned about necessity for them and potential interactions. Uh, we'll continue with the article after this next break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott Bay, your host and your source for mental health news. And we're talking about how the elderly are on a lot of psychiatric medications but not getting appropriate psychiatric care. Uh, now, we were talking about drug interactions with all the psychiatric medications interacting with the other medications this population are prone to be taking. Antidepressants can interact with blood thinners and painkillers and potentially can raise blood pressure, all of which are more likely to be problems for older adults who are generally on more medications than their younger counterparts. We need to pay special attention to this polypharmacy, as it's called, or multiple drugs taken at once when prescribing psychiatric drugs in this population because so many older adults are already on multiple medications for other things like high blood pressure, heart disease, diabetes, thyroid. Researchers started their study with information from over 100,000 outpatient visits to outpatient physicians between 2007 and 2010, 
collected by the National Ambulatory Medical Care Survey. This was a national survey administered by the National Center for Health Statistics for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in Atlanta. They examined four types of visits, ones where patients received a mental health diagnosis, ones where one saw, a patient saw a psychiatrist, uh, where a patient received psychotherapy, and or where a patient received a prescription or renewal of a prescription for a psychiatric type medication called psychotropic medication, including antidepressants or anti-anxiety drugs, mood stabilizers, antipsychotics, or stimulant drugs. They converted their results to a population-based visit rate, which helps consider the number of visits out of the eligible pool of potential outpatients in the community. In this slide, for example, visits related to antidepressant and anti-anxiety drug use among older adults, 63 and 62 visits per 100 people per year, respectively, occurred at nearly double the rates of such visits by younger adults, 36 and 29 visits per year per 100 people, respectively. In contrast, older adults see psychiatrists at about half the rate of younger adults, 6.3 versus 12 visits per year per 100 people. While it's true that we have patients who are not getting treated for mental health concerns, these data suggest that we also need to be mindful of the possibility of overtreatment, especially given the changing balance of risk and benefit as patients age. In other words, there are these two issues here. There is the issue that too few of these patients are actually getting to see a mental health professional, but also are the medications necessary in all of these cases. Uh, so again, um, <clears throat> while it's good that the issue is being studied, um, it gets back to what I was saying right before the last break. The, there being no easy solution to the problem, it's incumbent upon uh, those of us who have family or close friends in this situation to regularly scrutinize uh, these elderly people's medication lists, uh, check for potential adverse interactions, uh, ask doctors pointed questions about them, and try to get them into a mental health professional if they genuinely and legitimately have a mental health problem that warrants treatment. Now, next on psychiatry today, here is a study that shows that kids with ADHD, who previous research has shown to be more prone to accidents and injury, may have reduced injury risk if they're on medication. All right, so we can add this to existing research that shows that, well, of course, kids will do better in school when they're on medication than not. But other research also shows that they have less risk of substance abuse or legal problems, divorce, car accidents, what have you. 
this just adds to the overwhelming evidence of the benefits of proper treatment of ADHD, um, including other treatments, not just medication. And this certainly, uh, I think, counters the arguments made by people who still cling to the belief flying in the face of decades of factual information that in fact there is no such thing as ADHD, uh, that these kids' behavioral and academic problems are due to uh, faulty parenting. Um, it's very, very sad that these attitudes persist. Um, <clears throat> and it reminds me that at one point many, many, many decades ago, uh, the devastatingly uh, disabling disease of schizophrenia was once thought to be due to pathological mothering. Um, you know, so despite the uh, decades of advances in science, uh, there are people who choose to ignore that. And uh, here is more scientific evidence about the benefits of treatment. Uh, <clears throat> what they found are that children with ADHD, that's attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and again, we don't use the term ADD anymore. It's now all called ADHD, and then you specify three subtypes, either inattentive type only or uh, hyperactive impulsive type only or combined type if there are features of both. Now, kids with ADHD are less likely to have accidents that land them in the emergency room when they're on medication. And in addition to reducing accidental injuries, the medication certainly helps them do better in school. Many children with ADHD can do fine in school without medication if parents and teachers are aware of the issues and address them with appropriate accommodations. Things like um, quiet spaces for them to take tests by themselves, uh, extra time to complete tests or assignments, and things like that. And let's face it, the medications aren't a picnic to take for all kids who take them. They can have unwanted side effects like trouble sleeping, decreased appetite, weight loss. In, in, there are very slight instances of reduced growth rates that have been documented, headaches. So the decision to treat with medication is not one that is to be taken lightly, much as uh, it seems to be the case. And it should be a joint decision by the family and the clinician. Uh, but certainly the evidence found by these researchers of less risk for injury uh, is something that families should take into account. Families and clinicians both should be taking, taken into account when making decisions like this. Researchers used Danish national health registries, uh, which in Denmark they track everyone from birth to death, and you can get a wealth of information uh, to complete research studies with. They looked at more than 700,000 people, uh, a very large number giving you good data. They looked at injuries and ER visits as well as drug prescriptions. And if you were a child born in Denmark between 1990 and 1999, including over 4,500 who had been diagnosed with ADHD, between the ages of 5 and 10, and they followed them through the end of 2010. Uh, that's where they got their data from. It was reported in the journal The Lancet Psychiatry. So of the kids with ADHD, 
A quarter were treated with prescriptions, usually Ritalin, for at least six months. And they looked at injury rates when they were ages 5, 10, and 12. For all kids, the average injury rate was 11%, 13%, and 16% at these ages, again, 5, 10, and 12. For kids with ADHD, the rates at 5 years old was 20% at 16 uh, sorry, 16% at age 10 and 18% at age 12. So higher than the average for all kids, especially for the youngest ones. And then with kids who were taking medication for ADHD, uh, the percentages dropped um, from 19% to 14% at age 5 uh, to um, 10. And then um, those not taking medication had a 17% risk of injury at both ages. So this, you know, despite the fact that it's hard to follow the numbers and everything the way it's presented, the bottom line is it is a decrease in risk, which is important. Now, it is true that while in some settings ADHD might be diagnosed too frequently, and furthermore, each case is unique and requires a risk-benefit analysis to decide on treatment it is important to know that medication may help reduce the risk of injury. It is more frequently diagnosed in the United States than in Denmark or in Europe in general. Uh, there have been a number of articles reporting an increased risk of accidents in children with ADHD because these young kids move around a lot and they can be inattentive and distractible and impulsive with poor inhibitory control. They have fall injuries more commonly bicycle and car accidents and for older kids. So parents can prevent injuries by anticipating times of greatest risk, like when they have more peer pressure, when there's no adult supervision, or when alcohol and drugs are available, uh, encouraging the kids to take precautions. And while it was an observational study, I know they didn't take a bunch of kids, give them medication or not, and see the difference, right? They just observed the different populations and saw the injury rates, you certainly wonder if the kids who didn't get medication would ha have had a reduction in their injury rate if you would then put them on medication. But even so, it's possible that non-medication therapies could potentially have reduced the rate of accidental injuries, uh, but that wasn't something that these researchers looked at in this new study. So, can it be concluded, therefore, that more kids with ADHD should be taking medication because of this research? No, but the fact that medication was associated with a reduced rate of accidental injury uh, supports the potential value of children uh, getting this treatment and families who opt to pursue it. Now, with that, I'm going to wrap up tonight's show. I hope that you found the information that I enjoyed bringing to you informative, and I hope that till we get together again next time, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. There'll be no show on August the 12th. See you again August 19th. Good night, and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.